When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A White House meeting leaves lawmakers optimistic about averting a government shutdown. And hotels are still struggling with staff shortages that could push up prices. Many workers are still kind of skeptical of the industry and don't really want to return after there were obviously mass layoffs in 2020. So there's a lot of distrust among workers and and employers. Plus, Macy's plans to close 150 stores. Will its turnaround strategy work? It's Tuesday, February 27th. I'm Anne-Marie Fertole for The Wall Street Journal. This is the PM edition of What's News, the top headlines and business stories that moved the world today. Fears of a partial U.S. government shutdown are easing after a White House meeting earlier today. House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said they were optimistic about reaching a deal in the coming days. Congress has until Saturday at 12.01 a.m. to fund several agencies that have been operating on temporary extensions since September 30th. Joining me now from the Capitol is Wall Street Journal congressional reporter Siobhan Hughes. Siobhan, this morning it seemed like the prospect of a temporary shutdown was unavoidable. So what came of these talks that made lawmakers optimistic about a deal? What came of these talks is a sense of how Mike Johnson is really a man on an island. The next steps, the path forward are up to him. And he appears to be concluding that at least as far as the government shutdown goes, he has only one choice to keep the government open. He did come out saying that he was optimistic there would be no shutdown. As Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said afterwards, that points at least in the near term, to some type of continuing resolution, a temporary measure to keep the government open for a little bit until these broader issues can be resolved. As far as the next step, Mike Johnson has pledged to give his conference 72 hours to view any bill. And so that means by later Tuesday, we should see the posting of some type of a bill if we are going, in fact, to avoid a shutdown this weekend. So what happens after that, Siobhan? We are staring down a deadline in just a couple of days here. After that temporary measure passes to avoid, let's call it that partial government shutdown by March 1st, you still have to deal with the fact that you've got to fund the government for the rest of the fiscal year, all 12 bills, the Defense Department, the Transportation Department. And so you would be deferring action on those for probably until March 22nd is the date that people are talking about. But the big thing at risk here is whether or not you're going to trigger a 1% across the board cut in overall government spending by kicking the can so far down the road that you trigger these provisions in the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Ukraine has also been brought up as part of these negotiations. Where does that stand? So Ukraine still seems to be on a separate track from government spending. But I have to tell you, at that White House meeting today, Ukraine was the emotional heart of that meeting. And you had all three leaders, in essence, ganging up on Mike Johnson, cornering Mike Johnson, telling him this money has to come through almost immediately because Ukraine is on the verge of losing in the hostilities against Russia. That's Wall Street Journal congressional reporter Siobhan Hughes. Sticking with politics, it's primary day in Michigan. 
Former President Donald Trump is expected to defeat former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in the GOP primary. Foreign policy is looming large over the battleground state, which, as we talked about on this morning's show, is home to the largest percentage of Arab Americans in the U.S. For Democrats, it's an important test of President Biden's vulnerability to anger over his support of Israel's military campaign in Gaza. Some local leaders are urging Democrats to vote uncommitted to protest the administration's handling of the war. Most polls in Michigan close at 8 p.m. Eastern time, except for a handful of counties in the Upper Peninsula, where they close at 9. You can follow along as results come in at WSJ.com. More changes at Macy's under new CEO Tony Spring. The retailer announced today that it'll close about 150 underperforming stores. That's about 30 percent over the next three years. The plan includes upgrading its remaining 350 locations and opening smaller versions of its namesake stores. Here now with more is Wall Street Journal retail reporter Suzanne Kapner. So, Suzanne, our listeners might remember that in January, Macy's eliminated 13 percent of its corporate staff and decided to close five stores. What do these additional changes mean for Macy's business? Well, for those who recall, even going back a few years, this is yet another iteration of Macy's trying to shrink to save itself. It was only a few years ago where a prior CEO closed a large number of stores in a a similar bid to kind of refashion the chain's footprint. So they want to eliminate these 150 stores, which they say they account for about a quarter of its square footage, but only 10% of its sales. So these are very unproductive stores, sometimes in older malls, older markets that just aren't like growing or vibrant anymore. And they want to instead open these small format Macy's stores, which are not located in shopping malls. They're about a fifth the size of a typical Macy's department store smaller assortment, sort of easier for shoppers to park and get in and out quickly. They have about 12 of those locations now. They want to take that up and grow that. And they also want to grow their Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury chains, which have been posting better sales than the Macy's stores. Suzanne, I can remember a lot of retailers when I was younger that don't really exist or have the same presence that they did years ago, like Sears, other department stores especially. What are the risks of a Macy's strategy in going this route? Well, you're right. We've seen a lot of stores shrink themselves either out of existence or to irrelevance. And I asked the Macy's CEO that question, and and he said, this is not about just shrinking. It's about resizing the portfolio. And, you know, his hope is that they can sort of tweak the store size and the store count and put Macy's on stronger footing going forward. But it is a challenge because they're working against macro trends that have just been very difficult for the department store sector. You know, you've seen Walmart just put up very good numbers and luxury players, you know, had been doing very well. It's very hard to be in the middle where Macy's is. That's a very challenging place to be. Tony Spring, the CEO, he really wants to upgrade the merchandise and the store shopping experience, which is two areas where Macy's has really lagged. Suzanne, Macy's is under attack from activist investors who are asking for seats on the board after their offer to buy Macy's was rejected by the company. Did that play any role in the changes we're seeing now? The company says they didn't formulate their strategy based on the activists, but clearly the closing of these 150 stores is likely something that activists had wanted to see. And Possibly they even wanted more closures than that because they were really pushing for Macy's to do more to unlock the value of their real estate. Now, whether this goes far enough to appease the activists, it's unclear, but it is a step in the right direction. 
That was Wall Street Journal retail reporter Suzanne Kapner. Sony Group says it's laying off 900 employees from its PlayStation business, which represents about 8% of the unit. The company's also closing its London studio. Sony's plans add to a string of job cuts in the video game industry recently. Global consumer spending on video games was essentially flat in 2023, according to industry tracker Newzoo, after falling in 2022 for the first time in more than a decade. Turning from video games to film and TV. Streaming is transforming those industries, and we want to know what questions you have about how entertainment giants like Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery are deciding what to make. How are you deciding what content's worth paying for? How has streaming changed your viewing habits? Send us a note, or even better, record a voice memo on your phone, and send it to wnpod at wsj.com. That's wnpod at wsj.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 212-416-4328. Just be sure to include your name and location. We might use it on the show. Coming up, consumers could be contending with even higher travel costs as hotel staff shortages persist. Why the industry is still struggling after the break. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. The leisure and hospitality industry was among the hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic. But after two years of working to bring back hundreds of thousands of jobs, the hotel industry is still struggling with a persistent labor shortage. U.S. government data shows employment in the accommodation sector is down 9 percent from early 2020. All of that is threatening to raise prices even higher for customers. Joining me now with more is Wall Street Journal reporter Will Fewer. Welcome back, Will. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we saw a lot of these jobs come back as we pulled out of the height of the coronavirus pandemic. Why is the industry still struggling right now? Yeah, there are a few reasons. One is that many workers are still kind of skeptical of the industry and don't really want to return after there were obviously mass layoffs in 2020. This is probably one of the industries that was hit hardest from the pandemic. So there's a lot of distrust among workers and and employers. Another factor here is that the recovery in travel has been very uneven. There are a lot of sectors of travel that haven't quite recovered. Business travel is kind of recovering at different paces in various markets. And group travel is really key here. Big conferences, trade groups, associations, that kind of thing. That has been recovering, especially in the second half of last year, but it's still not quite back to pre-pandemic levels. Are workers looking to other industries? A lot of workers did leave the industry, and that that was a big problem back in 2020 when these mass layoffs happened. Think of housekeepers and waitstaff. These are transferable jobs. There were other frontline industries that were looking for employees, and they were paying out big payments during the pandemic. They were needed. So they left the industry. They went elsewhere, and now maybe they're getting paid better than they would have been paid in the hospitality industry. Uh, There's still caps on immigration that are essentially blocking these industries from getting the foreign workers that they would like to have. That's a core group of workers for the industry and for various others as well. So amid all this, how are hotels trying to lure back workers? So the hotel operators are offering a lot to try to lure back workers. They're promising more career growth. They're upping wages, reluctantly, I might add. But they are paying more as they have to to lure people back to the industry. And career growth and that higher wages really are kind of the key elements here. 
Now, you mentioned higher wages, and and Uh this could be something down the road that hits consumers, I'm imagining. That's right, yeah. So, uh, of course, these operators are looking to pass on those higher costs as much as they can. They can't pass them all on, or at least some of them can't, but as much as they possibly can without hurting demand, they're, they're going to. Bob Habib, who runs Maverick Hotels and Restaurants, which is concentrated in the Midwest and especially Chicago, he said that he expects his cost to go up about 10% this year, and he's going to pass as much as that as he can onto consumers. He doesn't expect to be able to recover all of that, though. Yeah, his quote really stood out to me as well. He said, if we're expecting empathy from consumers, we're not going to get it. Right. And that speaks to one other element of this whole dynamic, which is hotel operators are looking as much as possible to reduce their need for workers. They're rolling out more technology, and a lot of startups are catering to the industry. Startups are offering totally digital hotel check-in. As you can imagine, some consumers don't like that, as I've learned today in my inbox. Other things like QR codes in hotel rooms instead of traditional room service. And I think Bob was speaking to that element there, that they're going to ask consumers to be flexible and to be open-minded to those kinds of developments. But many aren't. Many are going to want the services and amenities that they're used to getting at hotels. And it's very much yet to be seen if that's going to come back and how it's going to come back and whether it's going to come back equally for all sectors of the hospitality space. That's Wall Street Journal reporter Will Fewer. In other news, the U.S. Justice Department has launched an antitrust investigation into United Health Group. The healthcare giant owns the nation's biggest health insurer and manages drug benefits and an extensive network of doctor groups. Investigators have been interviewing healthcare industry officials who compete with United Health. That's according to people with knowledge of the meetings. Investigators asked about possible impacts of the company's doctor group acquisitions on rivals and consumers, among other issues. Spokespeople for United Health Group and the DOJ declined to comment. And we report exclusively that cable giant Cox Enterprises is buying OpenGov in a deal that values the provider of software for cities and state agencies at $1.8 billion. Cox already held a minority state in OpenGov, and executives at the company say it's now buying the rest. The software platform helps with budgeting, accounting, asset management, and other local government needs. And finally, you're probably already familiar with the idea that artificial intelligence could replace you at your job. But did you know it can also affect whether you get hired in the first place? Most major employers use some automation to sort through job applications. There's some respite in New York City, though. Due to a first-in-the-nation law that went into effect last summer, job seekers can request to opt out of letting AI vet their resumes and job applications. But should they? Our work culture reporter, Ping Chen. If you do decide to opt out of an AI review of your application, you might maybe get looked at by a human being, but there's absolutely no requirement that companies do so. And given the volume that so many are dealing with, in many cases, it might be pretty unlikely that you do get anyone actually reading your application. That is a real concern that researchers flag because so many large employers in particular are using systems involving automated hiring processes and automated resume reviews. In a Pew survey done last year on AI in the workplace, 41% of Americans opposed the use of AI to review job applications. And that's what's news for this Tuesday afternoon. Today's show was produced by Anthony Bancy and Pierre Bienname, with supervising producer Michael Kosmides. I'm Anne-Marie Fertoli for The Wall Street Journal. We'll be back with a new show tomorrow morning. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. 
drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.